Here's the theme verse, 2 Peter 3.18, the very last verse of the letter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, if you look at 2 Peter 3.1, you'll notice that this is now, beloved, 2 Peter 3.1, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So if you all take a break from your Bible just for a second, look up at the screen. The title of the first message that we have from 2 Peter is Friendly Reminders. Now, uh, I am not the most organized individual in the world. Uh, If you look at my desk, there are some times that my desk has stacks of paper. I know some of you, when you have been confronted with such decisions and uh, desks and the like, call them organized stacks. How many of you have organized stacks on your desk? (laughs) Praise the Lord, I'm not alone. And then there's some people in the office that will come to me eventually when creatures are growing out of the stacks and there's weird looking, you know, things that you can't even tell what they are. They may be from other planets. And they say, Pastor Michael, would you like me to clean up that stack of paper? That's when I know I'm in trouble, right? All right, I better, I better do that spring cleaning. I better clean up my desk and try to get organized, right? And so uh, I do a little bit of that, and I'll cut the stack down by about three quarters, and then eventually the, it'll just start stacking up. There's something in me. I don't know if it's a bit of a pack rat mentality, but I get papers, and I just, I just put them on top of the pile, and I, th- I say something like this. I'll, I'll probably look at that later. <laughs> I don't need to look at it later. Most of it I don't need to look at later. So then when I go through the stack, I just start throwing things away. <laughs> and They could be important documents. I have no idea. I just start shredding stuff. But anyway, but I do have people who are in my life who are good at giving me friendly reminders, often with sticky notes. Anybody got a loved one who likes to put sticky notes on your forehead just so you don't forget anything? That's kind of the idea here. Peter was a reminder Mothers are good reminders. Some bosses are good reminders. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Did you do this? Did you do that? Spouses can be good reminders. In fact, if you are disorganized, it's really good if you marry an org. Okay? An org is an organized person. Because if a disorg marries an org, you've got something good. Because the organizer can help the disorganized one, and the disorganized one tends to be a little bit more spontaneous. So the organized one, when the disorganized one says, let's just go do this, they say, but have you thought of this, and this, and this, and this, and this? No, let's just go. All right, so there's compromise in there somewhere. So Peter is writing (laughs) with that introduction. 2 Peter 1.1 he opens the letter with Simon Peter, 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter is one of the grand characters of the New Testament. He heads every list of the apostles. Every time you see, and the apostles were these folks, he's at the head of every list. He seems to be the spokesman for the apostles. He's in the inner circle of the apostles. Whenever Jesus took just a smaller group It was usually Peter, James, and John, so he was part of the inner circle. And he is one of the grand characters of the Bible because he has a very relatable personality. 
He sometimes spoke out of turn. Some people have accused him of having hoof and mouth disease or whatever that is. Uh, sometimes he would say things in a moment when it seemed like he didn't know what to say, so he just said something, but then maybe what he said really was worthy of saying. <laughs> Uh, he was the one, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter gave that great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus commends him. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my father who is in heaven. And then Jesus tells him about giving him the keys. It's interesting when you look at Peter's great confession in Matthew 16 and the keys that were given to Peter and by virtue of given to Peter all of the apostles, it was Peter who opened the door he was the one that preached in Jerusalem when 3,000 people came to the Lord on the Feast of Pentecost. He was the one that went to Samaria to open the door to the Samaritans after, uh, I think it was Philip that went down there. And then he was the one that went into the house of Cornelius and opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter is a relatable figure in the sense that he also had a moment. You might remember Jesus, they had fished all night and Jesus said, uh, put, put uh, out the net to the other side of the boat for a catch. And Peter said, you know, we've toiled all night, but at your bidding, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And there was such a great catch. This is in Luke 5, around 8, 9, or 10, right in there. Um, Peter was so overwhelmed by what had occurred, and he was an expert fisherman. And by the way, the fact that Peter had a large house um, that is actually uh, one spot that they think may be Peter's house in Capernaum, means he was successful, so that means he was a good fisherman. He wasn't just, you know, barely getting by, but he bowed to the Lord. At your bidding, I'll put out the nets for a catch. A huge catch came in, and do you remember Peter dropped before the Lord and said, depart from me, O Lord, I am what? I am a sinful man. You don't want to be around somebody like me. Peter seemed to have the heights of, you know, the high of, uh, Walking on the water, nobody else did that. He was brave at times. He took out the sword and tried to protect Jesus in the garden. And then there were other times when he was overly confident and he said, though all forsake you, I will never. And then Jesus had to confront him and say this very night, Peter, you're gonna deny that you even know me three times. And Peter, after the third denial of the Lord, went out and wept bitterly. But it was Peter who was baptized with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and then became a lion of the faith. And the author of the letter, though this has been one of the more disputed New Testament books as, a, as it relates to authorship, uh, I don't think there's any question that it was written by the authentic Simon Peter. And the date that most scholars give is around A.D. 66. There's an allowance here for between A.D. 66 to 68. Tradition says that Peter died in Rome at the hands of Caesar Nero. Nero died in 68 AD, two years before Jerusalem fell. And so Peter died sometime before the death of Nero because Nero's the one that executed Peter. So Peter is at the end of his life. If you think about the fact that Jesus is doing his ministry in sometime in the late 20s to 30s AD, let's just say for the sake of our discussion that Jesus died in 32 AD and it's now 66 AD and Peter was probably just a guess, but he may have been in his 30s or 40s when he was ministering with Jesus. He's an older guy. He's fought the good fight and he's awaiting execution. In fact, 
He mentions this when he says in verse 14 of chapter 1, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, 114, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. There's an interesting prophecy that was given in the book of John, and Peter was told, he had asked the question about John, there appeared, appeared to be some sort of uh, talk that John might live forever or something like that, and you know, Peter said, what about this man? And Jesus confronted him and said, you follow me. But Jesus said these words, one day you're going to go where you don't want to go and you're going to stretch out your hands. And this was said to indicate the type of death that Peter would die. And some of you are familiar with the fact that there is a tradition that says that Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He felt unworthy to die in the same fashion. Don't know for sure if that tradition is accurate, but it is one stream of tradition that says that's how uh, excuse me, Peter died. So he's an older man at this point. He uh, is awaiting his death. Some people believe that he wrote this in Rome, awaiting execution. So of course the content is going to be extremely important like the whole Bible is. And his main thrust in the letter is to expose false teaching, whereas 1 Peter is given to encourage a suffering church, 2 Peter is written to exhort a church facing false doctrine. Example, 2 Peter 2.1 says, but false prophets, 2.1, also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, these false teachers will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." Second uh, Peter has been compared because there is some similar content to the book of Jude. And uh, it would appear that Peter wrote this before Jude wrote his letter. But there is very similar content. And as I step back from examining the New Testament and having taught, I think, just about every New Testament book, and some of them on uh, many occasions or several occasions, it always is, I don't know if the word staggering is correct, it is always insightful for me to see how many of the New Testament letters were written specifically to expose false teaching and false teachers and to protect the church against it. In fact, I will tell you, of the 27 New Testament books, you take the four Gospels, you got the book of Acts, just about every New Testament letter has some stream of content to warn the church about false teaching, to expose it and to prepare the church to deal with it, to have discernment, to bring the truth to them and then compare it, of course, to that which is false. The dangerous thing that was going on, uh, as Peter will mention in verse 16 of chapter 3, as we do just a little bit more introduction, notice Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter is talking about Paul's letters, 2 Peter 3.16, and he says, as also in all his letters, Paul's letters, 3.16, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, 
which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the, what? Scriptures to their own destruction. You see, folks, heresy is not just about some new idea. Let me park here for a second and tell you that the main problem, false teaching, heresy that's being addressed in 2 Peter is probably something called antinomianism. Big word, anti means no. Nomianism, the Greek word for law is namas. Nomianism is law. So there was a group of teachers in the first century, and this kind of bloomed in the second century under the heading of Gnosticism. And what one arm of the Gnostics taught was antinomianism, no law. Here's what it simply means. They, they taught it doesn't matter what you do with your body, what you do morally speaking with your sexual ethics, dot, 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 because all matter is evil anyway, and all, only your spirit is good, so whatever you do with your body doesn't really matter because only the spirit matters, so you can sin it up, dot, dot, dot. You can do whatever you want, and you're still gonna be fine. And Peter says, wrong. Paul says, wrong. Jesus says, wrong. <laughs> Who are you going to believe? I know it was a popular teaching because to know that I can get into heaven and do whatever I want sounds pretty appealing to the flesh, but it's just not the biblical teaching. And this appears to be what Peter is exposing. In fact, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 3, there were people that were taking Scripture, but they were distorting it or twisting it to what? their own destruction. More heresy is preached with an open Bible than you can shake a stick at. It's not just if someone is, has a Bible, it's if someone is properly interpreting and preaching the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about someone who is just, you know, kind of trying to shape their doctrine on some peripheral issues. I'm talking about someone who starts denying the deity of Christ someone who starts denying the Trinity, someone who starts denying salvation by grace. You get what I'm saying? They can take Scripture, but if they twist the Scripture, they do so to their own destruction and often take others with them. They, they can shipwreck people's faith. So this is a group, I know you guys are a discerning group, and we need to be a discerning group of believers to test what we're hearing and see whether it's so. So the main theme, if you're taking notes, author Simon Peter theme, exposing false teaching, teachers and teaching and how to defend ourselves against it. The date around AD 66 to 68, Peter's an old man awaiting his death and he is showing believers how to truly interpret the scriptures. And uh, in fact, in verses 16 through 21, and we'll see this in a message coming up, he's going to talk about an experience he had at the Mount of Transfiguration and how there's more, a more sure word of prophecy. That is, even though he saw the transfigured Christ, the scripture is the more sure word. So we always have to go back to the Bible to test things and make sure that we understand what's going on because there are such things as doctrines of demons and false teachers John Flevel, who's quoted in Warren Wearsby, says, by entertain, entertaining of strange persons, men sometimes entertained angels unawares, but by entertaining of strange doctrines, many have entertained devils 
unawares. If you look at some of the stories of the accounts of uh, cults or world religions that are teaching a lie, they have their beginnings with some sort of angelic appearance. Some sort of angel coming to this leader saying, this is the doctrine, or I'll show you where you can find the plates, and if you just put on these glasses, you'll be able to, you know, and, and on and on it goes. And so there is such a thing as another Jesus, 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 and 4, another gospel, another spirit. In Galatians 1, if you flip over there just for a second, Galatians 1, the Apostle Paul, with some similar concerns, the, the heresy or the false teaching is different here. It's probably what's called the Judaizing heresy, more of a legalist. Instead of a no law, these are more, everything's about the law. Galatians 1.6, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Galatians 1.6, which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort, remember twisting the scriptures, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And let me pause for a second. Some of you may be thinking, okay, what's the big deal about this doctrinal stuff? Well, here's the big deal. If you got the wrong gospel and the wrong Jesus, you're wrong enough to lose your soul. Is that a big enough deal for you? You have to have the right Jesus or he can't save you. There's a lot of guys in Mexico named Jesus. <laughs> we may say it, Jesus. Right? But they can't save your soul. Jesus was a very common name in the first century. You have to have the right Jesus. You have to have the right gospel. Or you can be wrong enough to lose your soul. So Paul, even in this early date of Galatians, says... There's people who are distorting the gospel. And then notice what he says, Galatians 1.8. Even though we, including Paul, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which I have, we have preached to you, let him be a curse. Greek word, anathema. Let him be under the curse of God. And just in case we missed it, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel Contrary to that which you have received, let him be anathema. And then keep reading. For I, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Look, sometimes it is not popular to say such things and draw the line so clearly, but they need to be drawn because they are biblical lines. We need to understand what the Bible teaches the, the God of the Bible has all the grace that we could ever imagine for us, but we need to have the right God and, of course, the right Savior. And so Micah 3.9 says, Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. There are some people who just twist and twist and twist, and we need to pay attention. So Simon Peter, opening the letter, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, his name in Hebrew is Simeon. Simeon means to hear. So Peter would be a good guy for us to listen to because sometimes always, he didn't always hear very well. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Jesus would often say, he who has ears to hear, 
Let him hear. How many sermons did Peter hear? How many miracles did he see? How many incredible things did he experience? He even walked on water. But did he always hear really well? (laughs) No. So maybe that's why he became a good reminder, because he learned some hard lessons. His name in Hebrew, Simeon, he was renamed Petros, Peter. That's the name that Jesus gave to him, which means rock or a little stone. He describes himself as a bondservant, a doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Bondservant, the Hebrew form is an eved. They literally used to take the voluntary slave, and if you didn't want to leave your master's home after seven years, this is in Deuteronomy and I think uh, Exodus, you could agree that you would become a voluntary slave for life, and they would have a ceremony, and the ceremony would be taking something like an ice pick or an awl, They'd put you against the door, and they would put the awl through your ear, and the awl would go into the doorway. At the doorway of a home is where covenants were made. In fact, they, when, you, when you have the idea of a uh, groom carrying his bride over the threshold, that's the idea of covenant. So when the eved, or the doulas, got the ear pierced, here's the significance. A covenant's made at the, at the threshold of a home, The all goes through the ear. The ear signifies hearing. I will always be listening for what my master tells me. And it literally means one who is attached to the house so that whatever my master or the master of the house tells me to do, I will do. I will be forever attached to this house with my ear open to what he has to say to me. I will not have a list of things that I do not do. Dishes, mow the lawn, pool, weeds. Everybody with me? No, whatever he says, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you say you're my doulos? Why do you say you're my eved? Why do you say you're my bondservant and you don't do what I say? Don't tell me you don't do the dishes. If I tell you to do something, do it. Or don't call yourself my servant. Don't call me Lord. Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I say. And many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And Jesus will say, I never, not I knew you once and now I don't know you anymore. This is Matthew 7, I think it's 23, right in there. I never knew you. You don't want to hear that. So Peter was an apostolos, verse 1. Of Jesus Christ. An apostle just simply means a sent one, but he was one of the 12. He heads every list, as I mentioned. He writes to those, verse 1, who have received um, a faith, or you could say the faith, because I think this is the Christian faith here, of the same kind as ours, the true faith in Christ, by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, just if you look at the end of verse 1, this is a strong deity verse. I think it's even stronger in the Greek. Jesus is called our God and Savior. So it's our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, everybody with me? 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 is a deity verse. You could write in the margin, if you are taking notes or you write in your Bible, Titus 2.13. We are awaiting the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13. So there are uh, several verses in the Bible that are deity verses uh, that clearly 
show that Jesus is God outside of the Gospels, like the Gospel of John. This is one of them. Jesus is called our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he is. He's God the Son. And the righteousness in verse 1 is probably the righteousness that comes to us by faith. We get what's called an imputed righteousness. The moment that you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, God takes the righteousness of Jesus and credits it to your account when you place faith in Christ. Salvation is a gift, and what you get is forgiveness of sins, but more than that, you get the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account by faith. Just write these verses down. Romans 5, 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Galatians 3, 21 and 22. And I'll take you to one because I think it's important that you just see this for a second. It's, this is Philippians, a little bit back. Philippians 3. Paul's been giving his uh, resume or his pedigree in Philippians, and he says these words. Philippians 3. Uh, verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing, this is going to be a key word in 2 Peter, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through what? Faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Everybody got that? Righteousness comes from God through faith, not works of the law, because if anybody had works of the law, it was Saul who became Paul, right? He just gave his resume. But it's the basis of faith. And so this is um, what Peter is after, I think, in the first verse, so that we know that the faith, uh, the righteousness comes through faith. Okay, 2 Peter 2, verse 2. 2 Peter 2, verse 2. Flip back there. He opens with a greeting that's common in the New Testament, often called the Siamese twins of the New Testament. 2 Peter 2, 2, he says, grace and peace But then he adds something that's a little different. Be multiplied to you. Grace and peace apparently can multiply. Do you like that? Because sometimes we think, well, grace and peace are just kind of these greetings, but they can, grace and peace can multiply in your life, which means that grace here is more than just a forensic term of right standing with God, saved by grace. We all believe that. We know that. But there's another meaning of grace, and grace is almost a synonym for God's strength. You can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you can get more grace in your life. How many of you would like more grace in your life? Paul wrote about the thorn in his flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. He prayed about it three times, and Jesus' response was, my grace is what? Sufficient for you. That's not saving grace there. Paul's already saved. The grace that's sufficient for him is in the situation. What the Lord was saying to Paul is, I'm not going to remove the thorn right now. So you're going to have to rely upon my grace. My grace is going to be sufficient for you. 
So we say, then give me more grace, Lord, especially if this thorn's going to still be hanging out of my side. Oh, yeah. Anyway. So grace and peace be multiplied to you. What a great prayer. What a great way to maybe end a correspondence to someone. Grace and peace be multiplied. Let it be made full. Let it multiply. Let it grow. Let it increase greatly to you. In what? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I think the word knowledge or a form of know, which is gnosis or the intensified form is epinosis, is used about 13 times in this little letter. Knowledge. Gnosis or I think most of the time it's epinosis. Epinosis is a thorough knowledge, a full knowledge. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, there are certain people that you've been listening to their radio show for years. You might have read a biography. Maybe they passed on a century ago. You may have uh, watched somebody in the movies. You feel like you know them. They don't know you. <laughs> Why? Well, because let's just take a radio show. Let's say that you've listened to a radio pastor for a lot of years and you feel like you know that person and that's cool and I, that's a blessing. However, you don't really have a relationship with them, do you? You know certain things about them. You, know, you might know their personality or style or whatever, but you don't really know them. There's no relationship and by the way, if you go up to somebody that, like, say they've been a movie star for years and you feel like you know them and they don't know you, they may call security, just so you know. Even though you feel like you know them, they don't know you. <laughs> there is a difference in the scriptures, and just, this is just logical, real life, between having a set of facts and knowing somebody. And it is true in the scriptures, that you can have knowledge, and this is true, I think, experientially, and not know God. Do you know that there are some people in seminaries that are, the seminaries have become completely bankrupt. They know things about the Bible. They know the Greek and Hebrew better than any of us. They know history. They know archaeology, but they don't know God. The Pharisees, who did all kinds of religious Things, fast twice a week. How many of you do that? <laughs> Not me. Anyway, some of you may. Um, they, they give tithes. They do this and that. And they don't know God. You can do the law and not know God. You can have knowledge and not know God. So there's something to be said for what's called here epinosis. If you want the spelling E-P-I. G-N-O-S-I-S, epinosis, a thorough knowledge. You see, grace and peace are connected to a thorough knowledge of God. Think of grace and peace as cause and effect. Grace is the cause, the effect is peace. You can't have peace without grace. But you can have more peace in your life with more grace. Do you think there are some Christians who have more peace than others? Yeah, you think there are Christians that are experiencing more of God's strength than others? Yes. What do you think is the difference? 
I would argue from what Peter's saying, it's how well you know the Lord, how close you are to him, how much you're spending time in the things of God. So epinosis is this intensified form. It's used in the Old Testament sense of knowledge as recognition of the will of God. It means it can speak of a process of knowing, like to learn about, to find out, to come to know. So it could imply a process. But it speaks of full discernment or a mature knowledge of God. Are you growing? Or can I take a step back? Do you know him? I told somebody in the last five or 10 years, I know God. And he went, oh, you gotta be kidding. (laughs) And I was like, no, I'm not kidding. I know God. I have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Because it wasn't measurable. God is spirit, right? So how do you have a relationship with God? But do you have a relationship with God right now? My sheep. They hear my voice, and I know them. I give them eternal life. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18 is a prayer, and Paul, at the end of that, says, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. And in verse 17, he says, I'm praying that you may know him better, that the eyes of your heart may be opened, that you may know God better. Seeing, verse 3, that his divine power has granted to us, the church, how much? Everything pertaining to life and godliness you have right now. You have everything in Christ that pertains to life and godliness right now. All you need to do is grow. I was... Uh, spending some time with two young men. We're going through some one-to-one discipleship and we're, it was around the lunch hour and we're talking about some of these concepts and I said, look, when a baby's born, does a baby have everything that it will need for the rest of its life? Well, in one sense, no, but in one sense, yes. Let's, let's back up for a second. Let me just put it this way. Does it have all of the necessary parts, equipment in quotes, Brain function, circulatory system, all that it needs. Talking about a normal baby now. From the time it's born, the only thing that that baby needs to do is grow. There's not going to be any additions in the sense of what it has, humanly speaking. It just needs to grow. And when you are born again, you're a baby Christian. And At the moment you're born again, according to Peter, you have everything you need in regard to life and godly living. The only thing you need to do is grow. 2 Peter 3.18 is the theme verse. But grow in the grace and knowledge. Are you growing? First you gotta ask, do you know him? Do you have a personal relationship? When Christians talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what we're talking about. Do you know him? I'm not asking you if you know a set of facts. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. Those are all wonderful things. I'm asking you, do you know him? And if you know him, you know that you know him. Amen? 
You see, his spirit bears witness with our spirit. And this is, you could call it subjective experience. But it's something that happens on the inside. I know that I know him. I've been born again to a living hope. I'm in his family. I want to grow. I'm trying to grow. There's things that I can do that help that growth. But his divine power, look at verse 3. God's dunamis power has granted to us everything that we need for this, I would argue, this new life, the new creation in Christ, and godliness, which means a God-centered life or a God-dominated life, through the true knowledge of him. This goes back to the epinosis. The, you got to have the right God, the right knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and excellence. He called you. You responded to the call. Now you're in. So think about a baby. What does a baby need to grow? Nourishment, time, schooling, experience, life lessons, training, discipline, failure, success. These can all contribute to growth. So God can work all things together for good, for your growth. And I'm sure that if you know that you've been born again, and you've been on this journey for a while, you've probably experienced everything I just read <laughs> multiple times. That's how you grow. For by these, look at verse four, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption or decay that is in the world by lusts. God has given us, by his divine power, everything we need. He's given us this true knowledge, and he has given us, verse 4, he has granted us precious and magnificent promises. The word precious is an interesting word because it speaks of that which is beyond even calculation. It, it speaks of something that, that's of great value. I remember John Corson was talking about a daughter, his daughter that died. And they were cleaning out a closet in their home and they came across a lock of hair from their daughter that had been bagged for something that she was involved in. And he said the only word that they could think of in finding the lock of hair of a daughter that has now gone into heaven was the word precious. Do you know the big fisherman, this big studly fisherman, Peter, use the word precious over and over again. God's promises are precious. Are they pre precious to you? Think about Peter. He's probably awaiting, you know, being beheaded by this crazed Nero Roman emperor. You think God's promises were precious to him? Can you think about how many times he may have replayed the miracles of Jesus? The moment when he walked on water and sunk? The moment that he saw Jesus transfigured on the holy mountain? The time when he said to a little girl, arise, and she woke up and she was dead. Standing at Lazarus' tomb and Jesus calling to the other side of the grave and get an answer. You know, he was, he was probably, you know, if we're talking the late 60s, he's 30 plus years removed from all of these events. How precious do you think the promises were? They're not only precious, they're magnificent. Is there anything close to the promises that you have in Scripture of eternal life, of the kingdom of heaven, of the new Jerusalem, 
of knowing that the one who said the curse is going to be reversed, death is going to die. He who speaks these words, he is faithful and what? True. They're precious. In fact, they're the most precious things in my life. Nothing compares. Because everything else is temporal. We can talk about, I enjoy talking about other things. I'll talk football with you. I'll talk Harley Davidson's with you. I can even talk a little bit of the stock market with you. <laughs> but in the end, nothing compares to the precious and magnificent promises that we have in Christ. And we, these precious and magnificent promises are where we get the knowledge that we need, the right knowledge, in order that by them, by the promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. Now, does this mean that we're little gods? No. <laughs> but we are made in the image of God, and in some way, we partake of the divine nature, or some people have put it, the divine life. In what sense do I partake of the divine nature? Not that I'm divine, one God, nobody else is God. He is it. He's cornered the market on deity. Amen? Anybody who says they're a God, back away slowly, quickly. <laughs> right? There's false gods. Satan is called the God of this age. But there's only one true God by nature, Galatians 4.8. So then how do you partake in God's nature? I think this, and here's where we need some precision. When you're born again, what happens to you? Jesus said, unless, to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, unless you are born again, you will what? You will not see the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, being, he talked about being born of water and what? The Spirit. You gotta be born again of the Holy Spirit. You can look at Titus 3 and other places. What happens when you're born again of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit comes and what? Lives in you. And you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's how you partake of the divine nature. You don't become a God. You will never be God. You will never be a little God. But when the Holy Spirit resides in you, the divine nature you now partake of. Everybody with me? In that, God now lives in you. And by virtue of that life that is in you, the life of the Spirit, you can now manifest the things of the Spirit because the Spirit of God lives in you. Amen? And that's how you partake of that divine nature. So the promises of God are in the Holy Scriptures, Romans 1, 2, he who promised is faithful, Hebrews 10, 23. All the promises are yes and amen through Jesus Christ, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 20. God's promises are true. And he promised to send the Spirit. And the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And every time somebody opens up their heart to Christ, they're born again, or literally born from above. The Spirit comes and resides in me. And tonight, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Have you come to recognize his voice yet? 
And you'll get little nudges. Sometimes you can grieve the spirit. Sometimes you can quench the spirit. But oftentimes you'll hear the spirit in a still small voice. And you learn to tune into that voice as you read the Bible, as you spend time in prayer. It's his power that works mightily within us. Ephesians 3.20. We're strengthened with power in the inner man through his spirit. Ephesians 3.16. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what we're talking about. The divine nature being a partaker of it. The divine life. His life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and through me. It's the power of the Spirit. Wait until you receive power from on high. Amen? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Ever tasted that power? I've tasted it. Oftentimes when I'm preaching. And I'll go back and listen to a message that I preached. And I'll say something like this. Boy, that was good. <laughs> Who is that guy? <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know where that came from. Well, wait a minute. I do know where that came from. Now, it's not always that way. Sometimes in your humanity, when you're preaching, you, you go, uh-oh, I'm not sure this is happening <laughs> right now. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, the power of the Spirit makes all the difference, doesn't it? And we have that power in us. And... This is how we're going to escape the corruption of the world. Now, I'm going to give you um, a list, and I'm on limited time. Mm -hmm. But let's move into it. And here's here's the the thing I just want to say at the outset. This is 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. It's possible to get sucked back into the world and its ways if, you don't, if you're not diligent. Here's where we're going. This is a list of how you fight the good fight, how, do you, how you work out what God is working in, how you walk in the good works that God's prepared that you should walk in them. Here's verse 5. Now, for this very reason, everything that I just said, Peter would say, also applying all diligence in your faith. Faith is the foundation. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He's going to start giving a list. Now, depending on how you count it, it's either seven or eight. Seven's good because it's the number of completion. Eight's good because it's the number of new beginnings. So I'll let you just decide how you want to count it. But you need to apply all diligence. Now, what does it mean to be diligent? It means that you're on the ball. If you have a diligent worker, it means they show up on time, they work hard, they do what they're supposed to do. They're diligent. Someone who's not diligent is the opposite. (laughs) Not hard to figure out. In your faith, you need to do these things. There is an application. There's your part, it, yeah, you, it's the divine nature. Yes, it's the power of God. But you, in some way, must cooperate. The faucet runs, but you've got to get under to take a drink. Go, 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 go. The ocean waves are coming, but you've got to come up with your little cup and say, I don't know where you filled my cup today. And the Lord says, i got plenty of water. Just come on up here. 
Take your little cup. You'll be all right. The waves will just keep coming. It's not a matter if the grace is there. It's a matter if you will position yourself to receive the grace. Everybody with me? So if you ignore the graces, if I can put it that way, then you're going to lack power. You got to drink. You got to take in. You've got to apply diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence. Moral excellence is a Greek word which means virtue, to excel. It can speak of fulfilling one's purpose, being endowed by God to do so, moral excellence, living out what you believe. Notice the next thing. In your moral excellence, they seem to build on one another knowledge. Knowledge here is the word gnosis. It means close acquaintance with. The word also always implies much more than intellectual grasp of things. It includes spiritual experience. In your knowledge, self-control. If you have knowledge of God and you're growing in your relationship with God, a consequence will be self-control. Self-control, I shouldn't need to define it for you, should I? If you're out of control... If, you're, if you explode at the smallest of things, if you can't control your appetites, and you know what I'm saying, I'm talking about ungodly ones, then you don't have self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. Perseverance is hupomone in Greek. It, mean, it basically means to hang in there with hope. Perseverance means hang in there with hope. Simple definition. And in your perseverance, godliness, godliness is godlikeness. We're supposed to imitate God, Ephesians 5.1. Godliness is Eusebia in Greek, and it means God-centeredness or a God-dominated life or a more focused walk on God. In your godliness, brotherly kindness, verse 7. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Brotherly kindness is a single word, Philadelphia. It means you must be nice to your brothers. Always. <laughs> now, sometimes you're nice because you're supposed to treat your family nice. Somebody might say. But the word for love is different because it's not Philadelphia. It's agape. And love is the pinnacle. It is the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. It is love that sums it all up. You know you're becoming more like God if you're loving agape style. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So you should love one another. By this, how many? All men will know that you are my disciples. Love one another. Check your spiritual temperature. How are you loving? Agape love is not a love that expects anything in return. It just loves. It's the ultimate fruit. And if these qualities are yours and are what? Verse 8. Increasing. Apparently you can increase in these virtues. You can get better at them. You can be more effective at them. Then if they're yours, if you have them, and you're growing or increasing... They render you neither useless nor what? Unfruitful. A lot of the, this is like another list of the fruit of the Spirit. Just in 2 Peter, instead of Galatians 5, 
and I don't even think it's exhaustive. If these qualities or fruits are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And here it is again, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these seven or eight elements are yours, these characteristics or qualities of the new life, then you are going to be useful and fruitful. How do you like that? How many of you want to be useful and fruitful? Anybody want the opposite? <laughs> we need to talk later. Okay? No, I think I want to be useless and unfruitful today. I just decided. <laughs> I've had days like that. One day a week, maybe. Today, I will be totally useless and totally unfruitful. And if anybody has any questions, send me an email because I'm not talking to anybody face to face today. All right, we'll give you one day in seven, maybe. <laughs> Diligence, moral excellence, not moral average, averageness, not morally squeaking by. Epinosis, strong, intimate knowledge of God, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. If these are yours and are, are increasing, you're going to be useful and fruitful. You're going to be doing some good stuff. You're going to be loving people. But <laughs> he who, verse 9, lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Some of you could write a name next to verse 9. Some of you could write multiple names next to verse 9 because you know people who you believe that are saved tonight and they are verse 9. They have become blind, short-sighted, which in the Greek means spiritually they squint a lot. I'm just kidding. I don't even know if it means that. My dog, my dog is having some eye problems. And, and so she, her eyes get all messed up and she starts. And I try, we've tried to give her the drops, you know, to help the eyes. Oh, she don't like it. In fact, she's snipped at a few of us. We have to hold her snout now and try to hold her down and she doesn't like it. <laughs> but we're trying to tell her, we're trying to help you, you silly hound. And she, the tail goes between the legs and she goes off running. We'll talk, we'll talk about the sedatives later. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. And once he has looked at himself, he goes away and he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Blind. Revelation 3, what is it, verse 17? You think you got it going on, but you're blind, wretched, naked, poor. There's some people that have forgotten who they are. I hope that's not you tonight. In fact, every day I think it's good for a Christian just to take a few moments to remember who you are. Formalize that. Lord, thank you for who I am in Jesus Christ today. By faith, I know who I am. I'm putting on the full armor of God right now. I want to serve you today. Thank you for who I am in Christ. Thank you for what you've done for me. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. 
Make your calling and election sure, ESV, NIV, New King James. For as long as you practice these things, oh, look at that. You will what? Never stumble. As long as you practice these things, everybody should have verse 10 on their refrigerator. As long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. But here's verse 10 for our Calvinist friends. You need to make certain about his calling and choosing of you because if you're blind and you're squinting and you're not doing really well, maybe you were never chosen. Here's the problem with the Calvinist approach of this because every elected person is supposed to persevere so there would no, be no reason to make sure of your calling and election because if you're elected, you are elected and if you're not elected, you're not elected and nothing's gonna change that anyway so why make your calling and election sure? <laughs> that was just a minute overview. <laughs> anyway, just a thought. I'm not trying to be... Uh, mean about it because there's many good Calvinists out there. I don't agree with the position, but, uh, but Peter seems to be saying, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, because if you lack these things, maybe, maybe you were never born again. That's a reasonable thing to ask. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you go to church, but that's it. Maybe you, maybe you, got baptized when you were a child, but you're not born again. And if you're not born again, you're not going to produce these qualities. So you better just make sure that you're born again. And if you're not born again, get born again, because then if you're born again, you'll produce these qualities. All right, there you go. (laughs) For in this way, you make sure that you know the Lord and you're producing fruit, 11. The entrance or the future entrance not, not just being saved and becoming a child of the kingdom, but I think this is the future time, eschatological, they would say. You're, you're, but in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Some will come in singed, as we've talked about in the past, by this, you know, just barely, but you want to make an abundant entrance. You want to hear well done. You want to be rewarded well. And so Peter says, therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. We come full circle from where we started. Even though you already know them, I'm in the reminding business and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Pastor Chris, if you come up. Um, I have discovered something. A pastor is pretty much like a parent. We're in the reminding business. Amen? Amen. I've, I've discovered that that's pretty much my job now is to remind folks like you who already knew pretty much everything that I just said to stay the course. How many of you need reminders? Sticky notes? Okay. Some of you write scriptures down on sticky notes. You've got a promise box. You've got scriptures that you turn to when you're tempted to go back to the world, when you're struggling with your identity in Christ, when you are not producing all the fruit you want to produce. Look, we're... We've all been there, and we're probably going to be there again. But Peter's given us a formula. Would you bow with me? Father, I, I just ask for your help for all of us because this is so practical, so beautiful, so needed. Lord, we just want to surrender more to your power. You've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have it all. Precious and magnificent promises. Beautiful, grand, precious promises that are sure. And we want to live in the light of them. We want to walk them out. And Lord, 
we've all probably been guilty, maybe even this week, maybe even today, of not living in accord with those promises. And while it is your power and it is your calling, we still need to respond both. We respond in faith to the salvation call and we have to respond to the sanctification call. We have a part to play. We need to work out what you're working in. And the people who are here tonight have come because they want to do just that. So would you bless them for that? Would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? And I'm going to ask right now with your head and heart bowed, if you don't know that you're born again, you don't know that you know him, just make sure. Peter said, make your calling and election sure. Make sure. This is not something to toy with. Make sure you know him tonight. And it's very simple. Jesus, come into my life. Pray it if it's you. I'm a sinner. But I thank you that you died for me. You took my punishment. You took the wrath of God. And that you not only died on that cross, but you rose from the dead. And I'm gonna trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Please grant me the righteousness of Jesus. Forgive my sin. I repent of it. I put my trust in you, Lord, and I want to walk with you. Let me be born again of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, for the, the believer, may you fill us all afresh with your spirit. Give us your eyes to see your heart. And I pray your blessing upon your people in Jesus' holy name. Amen.